Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 15. Let's stand together. We're going to close out this morning the didactic portion of the book of Romans. We're going to close down the, the didactic portion of it. We're going to start the postscript next week. But I want us to go back. Um, we're going to look particularly at verses 7 through 13 this morning. But I want us to go back and we'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 15 and read it all the way through to verse 13 before we pray and we dig into this text together. So let's look at it. This is the Word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Joy and peace and hope, Lord God are the very things that apart from Christ we never had. Apart from Christ, Father, the truth is we might behold happiness, but joy was far from us. There was no real peace because we were at enmity with You, Lord God, and we were without hope and without God in this world. It's entirely by Your grace that all that's changed. It's entirely by Your grace, Lord God, that we are a company of people gathered here today to worship You and magnify Your holy name. It's entirely because of Your grace that we expect You, Lord Jesus, to to be in our midst, to be in the midst of Your lampstand, to to be receiving and directing and and you know, just orchestrating the entirety of our worship. It's because of Your grace that we expectantly wait for You to make Yourself known through the preaching of Your Word. It's because of Your grace that we do not shy away in abject terror and craven fear. But we draw near to You in the fear of the Lord and with a heart that loves You because You loved us first. Father, as we look at this text this morning, You know exactly what we need each one of us you know it better than we know it ourselves you know our hearts better than we know our hearts lord god you know exactly what we need from you 
for our spiritual lives. And so, God, I am praying that you will take the words that are preached today and you will apply them very specifically to every single individual that is in this room. That, Lord God, you would grant to me your favor and that you would fill me with your spirit so that I would preach your word in the unction of of God and not in my own strength. Not in my own wisdom, which are worthless. But, Lord God, in your strength and in your wisdom. And I pray, Father God, that by your Spirit, you would arrest every heart and every mind that's in this room today so that together we might, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would bring to pass, in our midst, exactly the promises of Romans 15. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be grateful people. And I pray that we would be forever changed by the work of your grace in our lives. So Lord, empty me of myself. Empty me of any reliance upon myself. Empty me of any desire to make anything of myself. And Lord God, fill me with your Spirit and let me make much of you. Make much of you and your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, be glorified in our midst. Let us not drift off. Let our minds not be drawn to other things. Let our minds be exactly where they need to be, focused entirely upon you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, before we get into this text, I just want to talk about the context of Paul's words one more time. As we're, as we're getting out of this teaching part of Romans 15, right? As we're getting out of this didactic section in Romans 15, 15, I want for us to remember what Paul's been stressing here for the last few weeks, right? The, the, these twin vital truths that, that he's been talking about, these two defining factors that really ought to serve as the foundation of the church and of our lives, right? And so I'll, let me remind you, the first one is this. The first is that we have been brought into the kingdom of God, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of His dear Son, Right? That's the first thing that is true about us. We are now under the reign and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ for our everlasting blessing and for, you know, the glory of God. We, we have been translated. We have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God by His infinite grace. Not because of anything that we've done. Not our merit. Not our worth. Not our abilities. Not our learning. Not our standing. None of that. We are in the kingdom of God entirely because of the grace of God. Amen? That's just the truth, right? And we are in this kingdom that is defined, Paul says, by righteousness and by peace and by joy in the Holy Spirit, right? And his whole point in saying that to us was this. Look, man, if you are in a kingdom now, the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of righteousness, and if you have been made righteous by the blood of Christ then, therefore, you are to live in a manner that is righteous and honorable. And you're to live in a way in which you deal with other people in integrity and in uprightness, right? Then second, having been made at peace with God by the blood of Christ, you are now to seek peace with one another in Christ, right? We're to seek peace with one another. We are to live peaceably, not just with those outside these four walls, but with those who are inside of these four walls, right? We're to love and and seek peace with one another. And then last, having been filled with the joy of salvation, we ought to be motivated to seek the same joy for other people, right? We ought to be seeking to make other people's joy full, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So our lives are not, you know, our lives are not our own anymore. We are now in this great kingdom, right? We're in this kingdom of God. And we do all this through the power of the indwelling spirit. And then the second thing is this. And we talked about it last week. The second thing is this, is that the goal of our lives, right? Corporately and individually, the goal of our lives is to bring glory to who? God. The goal of our lives is to bring glory to God. To live lives of wholehearted, comprehensive worship that honors and magnifies the Lord, right? That, that, that our life is not our own anymore. That we've been bought with a price and we are to glorify God in our bodies. In other words, we're to wake up to the realization that life isn't all about me. It's not all about me and my desires and my wants and my rights and my liberties in Christ and my best life now. Life's not all about me. Life is about not about my glory. It's not about your glory. Because God is ultimate. Because God is supreme. Because God is creator, sustainer, and redeemer. Because God is. We are not the center of things. And we're not to live for the praise of our own glory. We're to live to the praise of the glory of God. So our heart needs to be like that of the psalmist in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Not for the sake of Your steadfast love and for Your faithfulness, right? We live for the glory of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, listen, we're not left in the dark, right? Paul told us last week how we are to live in a way that that gives praise to God's glory. We've been given His Word, right? He's given us His Word. So what we need to do, what we're called to do is this. Get into His Word. Endure in His Word. Read His Word. Study His Word. Submit to His Word. Apply His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And by necessity, we will live lives that glorify God, right? We glorify God through obedience, through faithfulness, not just through high ideas about God and, and high feelings about God and great impressions about God, but actually by foot leather obedience to the commandments of the living God. You know, I'll give you two cents for a theoretical theologian. Maybe. But somebody who might be simple, who simply reads the Word of God and says, that is the command of my God, that is the command of my Lord, that is the command of the One who saved me by His own blood. Therefore, regardless of me, regardless of my thoughts or my feelings, I will obey this Word. That's a person I'll give you much for. We're commanded to be in the Word, to endure in it, to obey it, apply it to our lives. And in that way, he says, we find encouragement to persevere. We find encouragement, you know, to live a life that's driven by that great ultimate hope, which is Christ's return, right? And the consummation of the kingdom that we're in. A new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Our goal is that Together we might with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and declare the greatness, His greatness as Savior and Judge to a world, right? Only Savior and only Judge to a world that desperately needs to hear it. That's what we've been created and recreated to do. Amen? But in our text this morning, here's what Paul does. He brings his his teaching to a close. Again, before he begins this extended postscript. And Paul's concern, again, is that the church in Rome... And by extension, churches everywhere, including our own, 
would be so united in one heart and one mind that we glorify God in this world in a manner that is fitting of Him. And so to that end, look what He does. He charges us to welcome one another as Christ did you. Welcome one another as Christ did you. Now look what He says here. Verse 7 again. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, right? Welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, for the sake of His glory, for the sake of His name, for the purpose of magnify and exalting Him in the world. That's the idea. What does that mean exactly, to welcome somebody? Well, the welcoming that Paul's talking about here is this idea of, of accepting one another or drawing someone to yourself, okay? It's the idea of, re, of just accepting somebody into your sphere of life. It's the idea of, of, of drawing them to yourself so that they feel at home. In other words, the idea of this verse is accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the purpose of magnifying the glory of God. Now, I'm going to say something. And I want you all to tune in right now. I don't know how late you stayed up last night, but a lot of you look very tired. If you need to get up and shake it all about to wake up, then you do that. I want to say something here that might at first seem tangential, okay? But it's not. We're all familiar, aren't we? Like, I mean, if you've been, been in Christian, if you've been a Christian for very long, we all get sort of accustomed to any number of phrases in contemporary Christianity that, that can be misleading or a little bit confusing, right? Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like, I've heard people talk about born again Christians or spirit filled Christians as opposed to, you know, just normal Christians, right? That's a confusing statement. Because here's the deal, right? We know this. Like, look, and it's common. Here's the reality. Every Christian is born again. And every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or that person is not a Christian, right? Right? That's just the teaching of Scripture, right? And there's another one. And I don't want you to chuck rocks at me at first. I just want you to hear me out. There's another one that we use a lot. That, that I hear a lot. <clears throat> I don't use it, but I hear other people using it. It's this phrase, to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Anybody use that one recently? Nobody, just me. You're lying. Anybody use that? You know you have. Now here's the issue with that, okay? Don't chuck rocks at me, just listen for a moment. It's a frequently used phrase. And I know people use that phrase sometimes and you're well-meaning by it. You're very well-meaning by using that when you, when, you, when you use that phrase. But it's not entirely accurate. And here's why. Okay, just trace with me on this. It's not entirely accurate and here's why. When we speak to somebody and say, I want to invite you to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Do you realize what we're doing in that moment when you say that? You are putting them in the driver's seat. You ever notice that? You're putting them in the driver's seat. You're putting them in the position of determining and evaluating whether or not Christ is actually worthy of my acceptance. As if you're in a position or we're in a position to determine the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can do that with food. You can do that you know, if you're giving somebody some cash, would you please accept this money? Right? 
People are generally more willing to accept the money than they are accept Jesus, right? But anyways, you can do that with a lot of things. But we never hear that phrase, accept Jesus Christ, anywhere in the Word of God. You ever notice that? What do we hear? What do we hear? We hear things like this, John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did, you finish it, receive Him. Who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. In this very epistle, in chapter 3, Paul says that we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, what? To be received by faith. The call to repent and believe and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me. It's not a suggestion. It is a command in Scripture. It's a command. Now that might seem like theological nitpicking. Like, brother, you could have found something better to theologically pick the nits on, right? But it isn't. We don't accept the Lord Jesus Christ as if, hmm, Coke Zero is a little bit better than Pepsi Zero. We don't accept the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive Him. And we receive Him as needy sinners. We receive Him as those who have confessed our helplessness as lawbreakers and rebel sinners before the Holy God who are under His righteous wrath, right? We receive Him greedily and hungrily as as the only one who can save us from the wrath of the Holy God. We receive Him as those who know, man, we need a deliverer. I need a rescuer. I need a redeemer. I don't sit in the judgment of, of the worthiness of Christ and decide if I should accept Him or not. I receive Him with desperate and grateful heart, with all unholy and unclean, right? Give me Christ or else I die. That song we sing. That's how we receive Christ. Here's what I'm getting at. Here's why this is important. Beloved, listen to what I'm going to say to you. If you look at theologians throughout history, and particularly, you know, our Puritan forefathers, right? When you look at these guys, the emphasis, and the emphasis in Scripture, and the issue is not whether or not we accept Christ but whether or not Christ accepts us. That's it. It's not whether or not we accept Christ. It's whether or not Christ accepts us. Are you following me? So we need to ask ourselves, right? If we're supposed to welcome and accept people in the same way as Christ did us, then what does exactly that mean? What does that mean exactly? How did Jesus do that? On what basis, first of all, does Christ welcome us? What's the basis? What's the foundation for it? On what basis does Christ welcome us and accept us and draw us us to Himself? He does so, beloved, on the basis of what? Repentance of our sin and our false ideas about God and faith, right? Two, two sides of the, of the same coin. We, we are accepted. We are, we are welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of our repentance of our sin and our false ideas about God and our faith in Christ, His finished work of salvation, calling upon Him as Lord, right? Remember we read back in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now you remember what we talked about, don't you? You remember what we said when we looked at those verses some time ago? When we talked about that word call, what does that mean? That word call, that word call doesn't just mean to, to lightly request. That word call means to cry out from the depths of your heart. That word call means to appeal for rescue. It is the call of somebody that sees the situation that they are in. Circumstances from which he cannot deliver himself. Hopeless and helpless as it regards his own power with nothing to rely upon to rescue himself. It is to look to somebody else to do for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. And then to cry out, to earnestly beg, to request from the depth of your heart as a, as a, as a great beggar. What you desperately need, a cry of desperation made to the only one that can rescue the sinner from God's well-deserved wrath. That's what it means to call upon the Lord. That's what it means to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It means you call on Him in all of His fullness. His name, it's, it's all of His fullness. It's, it's, to, it's to call upon Him in the way that the Scriptures offer Him all that He is and all that He has done. That's what the name of the Lord means. It's not calling out on the magic name of somebody you don't even know who He is. You know nothing about Him. You just know some guy said to you, well, if you just pray this prayer after eating in Jesus' name, you'll be saved. Who's Jesus? It doesn't matter. Just pray with me. Right? To call upon the name of the Lord is to cry out to Him to save you because He alone can save. There's no formula, there's no specific, you know, prayer to pray. There's no magic words that the pastor gives you. There's none of that. If you're truly calling upon the Lord from a heart that is desperate for Him, if you're truly calling upon the Lord from a heart that is repentant, believe me, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to call out to Christ. Nobody else needs to tell you. You'll respond just as you should. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I want to say something a little bit more about that. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the thing that blew the Pharisees' mind, okay? The Lord Jesus Christ welcomes sinners who know that they're sinners. He doesn't, he doesn't welcome all the shiny, scrubbed-up people who have it all neatly together and tucked away in their little, you know, briefcase. That's, that's not who Jesus is. The Lord Jesus Christ welcomes sinners who know that they're sinners. He doesn't welcome the proud. He doesn't welcome the, the self-satisfied. Jesus does not welcome the self-promoting. He does not welcome the, the self-justifying or the self-excusing. As the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees who proudly and, may I say, wrongly thought that they themselves were righteous in the eyes of the Lord, He said, those who are well... Not that they really were, but they thought they were. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came for sinners who know they're sinners. And who know they need a Savior. And I gladly welcome them. See, the Lord Jesus Christ will not be a commodity. Or a product or a service that we evaluate and then we accept. You know, in order to level up in our lives. You know what I mean? You're, if you play video games, not that I do, but if you do, you know what level up means. That's not how it works. The Lord Jesus Christ welcomes the humble and the contrite, doesn't He? The lowly of spirit. Those who know that they're sinners and that without Him there is no hope 
of a right standing with the holy God and who cry out to the Lord to save them. Save me, Lord. He welcomes those who repent of their sin and their lawlessness and their unbelief. Those who cast all their hope upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Those people who believe and who keep on believing. Who know that they have no hope apart from Christ. And who hold fast their confession of hope in Him without wavering. Because they know the Lord keeps His promises to save the repentant sinner who calls on Him in faith. Their hope is not in themselves. Their hope is in God who cannot lie. The Lord Jesus Christ welcomes all those who put their trust in Him as Savior and honor Him as Lord, as Master and Ruler of their lives. That's the basis. Repentance and faith. And here's the manner. Think about the manner in which Jesus receives sinners. Think about the manner in which Jesus welcomes sinners, believing sinners. How does He do it? How does He do it? Well, He does it He does it gladly and joyfully, doesn't He? At least that's what the parables tell me. He does it gladly and joyfully. He doesn't do it grudgingly. Jesus isn't like, oh, you got, you you do have the ticket. All right, well, come on in. It's not like that. He welcomes us gladly. And you know what He does? He welcomes us into the most intimate of relationships with Himself. Just think about the ways in which it's described, right? Christ becomes, He welcomes us into His fold as His sheep, Right? And what is He? He's our shepherd. Our good shepherd. Who leads us and who guides us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. He delights to do it, right? He welcomes us into His family as His brothers and sisters through the Father's adoption of us into the family of God. Think about that. He welcomes us as brothers and sisters and co-heirs of Him with the glories of heaven. He's not stingy or jealous. Or like, this is mine, get your own. Not that way at all. He welcomes us as brothers and as sisters. He welcomes us into the family of God as His friends. He welcomes us into a marriage covenant as His bride. He who loves the church. And gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present us to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He nourishes us and He cherishes us for that very purpose. He welcomes us with grace. He welcomes us with steadfast love and unwavering faithfulness. He welcomes us as saints in order to make us more into His likeness. He welcomes us to bless us and to care for us. Beloved, fellowship and communion mark our relationship to Jesus. He doesn't just welcome us and then cast us away. He doesn't just welcome us and then trade up for something better. He doesn't welcome us and forget about us. He welcomes us into eternal fellowship. Man, to abide in Him and to to follow Him and to live lives of continual repentance and ongoing faith so that He might build His kingdom. And He does it all for the glory of God. And so Paul's point's really clear. It's really clear. It's like, look, if Christ has so welcomed you, you know what you're like. 
You know what you're like. If you're honest, you know what you're like. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you know what you see. When you lay down at night in your bed, you know what it is that keeps you awake. And if God so welcomed you, if Christ so welcomed you in the way that He has, then you ought to welcome everybody else that He's welcomed. You ought to do that. You ought to accept everybody else who's been brought into the kingdom of God by repentance and faith just like you. you got no right to stand over one another or rank one another according to our relative goodness scale. You have no advantage because that person was a profligate sinner and you were a very good sneaky sinner. No, man, if, if Christ has welcomed this person, if Christ has welcomed Brian Fitzgerald, I have no right not to welcome him. No right at all. No, no right to, to not accept him. Sorry, Brian, didn't mean to like scare you, calling you out like that. That's just the reality here. Those whom Christ has welcomed, we must welcome into the sphere of our lives and do so gladly to include them, despite whatever superficial differences may exist between us. Listen, every difference between us, every single difference, amoral, you know, amoral difference between us, listen, they're all insignificant ultimately. Aren't they? They are. We're to welcome one another, to love and forgive one another, to encourage and bear one another's burdens, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort one another, to spur one another unto love and good works, to encourage one another and build one another up. What Christ has done, welcoming us for the glory of God, we must do with one another. And that was critical for the Roman church to hear. If there was ever a diverse church, it was the Roman church. They were made up of, I mean, man, they were made up of, of former Jews that were steeped in Judaism and all the ceremonial law, right? You know, they would be like people who only come to church in three-piece suits. And then they were made up of the Gentile ascetics who rejected the gross indulgence and the wickedness of, of pagan Rome. And that would be like the guys that come in t-shirt and shorts with the arm sleeves ripped off. And then there was, you know, they were made up of the Gentiles, you know, who had, man, come out of the pagan cults and their rituals and their false gods and the everyday guy in, in Rome that had come out of that wickedness and come unto Christ and they would be like the business casual folks, you know. The point is that, look, every church is composed of people from different backgrounds, is it not? It's composed of those who are mature in the faith and those who are immature. Those who are rich and those who are poor. Slaves and, and free. Masters and servants. The socially connected and the ignored. The brilliant and the simple. It was vital for the Romans to understand this truth about Christ's church. And it's just as vital that we understand it too. It's what Paul told the Colossians very succinctly. Here, that is in the church, listen up, there is no Greek and Jew. No circumcised and uncircumcised. No barbarian, no Scythian or slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Amen. Christ came on a mission to create the church for the glory of God. To create the church for the praise of His name. He came to create a church from every tribe, nation, and tongue. One new people. Jews and Gentiles. The kingdom of, of God on this earth to become the kingdom of God you know, in, in fruition. 
He did it so that we would be one new people who would worship and exalt the Lord, who would live to the praise of His glory. That's the reason that He left heaven's throne. That's the reason for which we have been saved and gathered as His people in this darkened world. Don't you do, dare do anything to undermine what Christ came to do. That's the idea here. In fact, Paul says that's why Christ became a servant. You know, we read these next several verses, verses 8 through 12, and it's almost like, all right, here goes Paul again, where he's, you know, piling up Old Testament quotation. What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to understand this, right? Look again what he says. Verses 8 through 12, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's to the Jews, right? To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Now obviously Paul's got something to say about the Gentiles, right? But before we get there, I want you to understand what he's saying here, okay? He's coming to the close again of his teaching portion, and he says, look, I want you guys to get the big picture here. Behold, okay? I I want you guys to understand, for I tell you, like, clue in right now, and listen to what I'm saying to you. Take heed of what I'm telling you. The Lord Jesus, he says, came as a servant to the Jews. He came as a servant to the circumcised, right? He came in order to lay his life down that they might be saved and the covenant promises made to Abraham might be fulfilled through him. That those who are children of faith, like Abraham was a child of faith, that they would be the children of God. Here's what Paul's getting at. You know, when Jesus came, he didn't come in the manner that the Jews wanted him to come. The Jews wanted the Messiah to come and to be this conquering hero, right, on a great white horse. To ride in and get rid of the Romans and line them all up like a, like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. Maybe bring them out to the pools of Vesuvius and just chop off all their heads. Right? Take over. That's not what he did. He didn't come as a conquering military hero. He came as a servant. He laid his life down. He was abused and mocked and scorned. And yet through it all, he was sinless. And then at the appropriate time, as the true servant of the living God, he gave up his own life. If you're here on Wednesday night, you're going to remember this stuff from Isaiah. He gave up his own life. And as bad as it was physically, the real issue was the spiritual component, correct? He came as a servant to fulfill God's divine plan for his elect Jews. Not all the nation of Israel is saved. But those who have a like faith as Abraham are. Right? He came for them as a servant. He also came as a servant to them in order that the Gentiles would also glorify God for His mercy. In other words, His saving work wasn't just limited to the Jews. A lot of people thought that. A lot of people thought that the Messiah would come and he would be the deliverer of the Jews only. And then the Jews would whoop up on everybody else that had been so mean to him. But that's not the case. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of every tribe, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. 
all who have a similar fate, like that of Abraham. The scope of God's redemptive plan wasn't just the Jews. The scope of God's redemptive plan is people from all over the world. In fact, it's exactly what Paul was talking about in his letter to the Galatians, where he tells them this. Listen to this. Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not by flesh, right? It's not ethnic. Know that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, King Jesus, that's the order there, Messiah Jesus, so that in Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Here in this letter to the Romans, what he does so concisely there in Galatians, Paul does through a series of four quotations from the Old Testament. Four quotations to show that God's plan of redemption has always included people from everywhere in the world. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and then Isaiah 11. Anybody notice something there? Let me read this again. Psalm, Deuteronomy, Isaiah. You getting a hint yet? Let me put it in the proper order. Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Psalms. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Which is what? The three main divisions of the Old Testament. Right? God's plan for Christ to be the Lamb of God... Right? His plan that Christ's saving work encompassed the world didn't just happen, didn't just come to pass when Christ was born in Bethlehem. It's been His plan all along. And here He proves it. In fact, I want you to notice the progression here. There's a reason He puts these, these, these verses in this order. Just watch the progression with me, right? Look at it. First thing He writes here is, As it's written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's from Psalm 18. That's, that's a Psalm of David. You know what it is? It's David looking back at his life. He's looking back at all of his great military victories. He's looking back at, at all the ways in which God had provided for him and strengthened him and, and brought his enemies to heal as he conquered the Gentile nations around him. Right? All the great work of God. For all of His victories. And it seems like just a personal psalm of David. Just a great song to God, right? Till you get to verse 49. Which is quoted here. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now at first here it sounds like a taunt song. That David's going to taunt all the Gentiles as he sings among them, right? But that is not what that means. The idea here is that, is that he will praise God before the Gentiles, but this idea of among means also together with them. He's implying here that they will ultimately praise God along with him. They're not doing it right now, but they're going to. They're going to. 
And David pictures here his military victories as a foreshadowing of the ultimate victory of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would conquer the Gentiles, not militarily, right? But who would conquer the Gentiles in the power of the Holy Spirit and rule over them as Savior and Lord. So you got David singing to God among the Gentiles, realizing that they're going to sing along with him too at some future point. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. He jumps to Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, which is from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, right? And here, Moses is at the end of his life, and he's celebrating God's faithfulness to his people, right? And he says, he, he says and again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Moses is singing a song of praise to God for his faithfulness, right, to the Jews. And then he includes this this exhortation to the Gentiles. And he calls them to abandon their idols and to abandon their, their false ways and to rejoice with God's people, right? So you've got the, the promise of it. You've got the call to it. And then we turn to Psalm 117. And again, he says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. Shortest psalm. Two verses, right? But short, though short, it's, a, it's got a huge scope. And what it pictures is that certain day, that certain hope of the day that will come when the Gentiles would gladly join in worshiping the one true God and they would do so not because of the Jews, not because of what the Jews have experienced. They would do it for their own experience of His steadfast love, His faithfulness, and His mercy. And Paul uses this text to show that the long-awaited time of the Jews and the Gentiles welcoming one another and worshiping God together is finally here. But he doesn't stop there. He looks to the future. And he quotes from Isaiah 11. It's an awesome text that describes the, the consummation of the kingdom, right? And Christ's perfect rule. It's a, a prophetic, poetic description of the consummated kingdom. Isaiah 11 is. And he, he writes this. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will all the Gentiles hope. That's Isaiah 11 and verse 10. Again, from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. But I want you to hear the context. I want you to hear the context. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. Okay? There's going to come forth a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Somebody in the line of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. There's Christ taking his kingdom, his people to himself and destroying his, his opponents, right? And then righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. 
and faithfulness to belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not be hurt or destroyed. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then verse 10. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will hope. This is a picture of the great glorious consummation of the kingdom of God with Christ as the only king and savior of the Gentiles and of the Jews. It's a picture of the ultimate triumph of the gospel. Paul saying, I've been teaching you all of this. I've been teaching you all of this in this epistle. And I want you to understand that the gospel is not just something that's detached from everything else. That it's not just some good news that is detached from the entirety of the Scriptures. I want you to understand what God's eternal purpose is. I want you to understand why the Lord Jesus Christ came. I want you to understand what this is all about. It's so that God might gather to Himself from all of the nations of the earth, not just the Jews, a people for His own pleasure, a people whom He has redeemed, a people whom He has saved and made brand new and put in them the Spirit of the living God so that they might worship Him in spirit and in truth and so that together you might with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. Understand it. Grasp it. Get it. This is bigger than you. It's always been bigger than you. It's always been about the glory of God. And it's always been about His perfections as Lord. Have the right perspective, brother. Have the right perspective, sister. See what it's about. And give yourself wholeheartedly to it. And then he offers this first benediction. Let's just look at it very quickly. He offers this first benediction for the church in Rome. And by extension for us. Look what he says. He says in verse 13, I love this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Paul's prayer for the entire church is that God, who's the only source of hope for his people, right? That he will fill his church with all joy and peace in believing what? The gospel. In believing the gospel. In believing what he's just been teaching us for the last 15 chapters. Believing the gospel. Trusting in Christ. Believing and trusting in Him. And continuing to believe and trusting in Him. Anchored to Him. Tethered to Him. Not by some long ago profession of faith. But every single day. Right? And that the Holy Spirit was so active among us. Right? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope is Christ. And we wait with, you know, one eye on the world and one eye looking to the sky for the day when God will rip the sky asunder and Christ will appear in all glory. And I'm ready for that day to come. And the guts of this prayer, beloved, 
the heart of it all is this. What he's really getting at this, this summation prayer, it's something like this. My prayer is, for you guys, is that in hearing the gospel, and having been taught the gospel, and having your eyes focused where they need to be focused, my prayer for you all is this, is that, you know what, you will experience fullness of joy and peace. That you will experience the fullness of joy and peace, the fullness of the power of God. In other words, that you would be totally satisfied. Fully and completely satisfied to overflowing by the blessings and the fruit of the gospel. May you be satisfied knowing now who God is. What He's about. What God does. His glory and His majesty and His holiness and His in His perfections. May you be satisfied knowing God for who He is. May you be satisfied knowing the great depth of your sin and your great estrangement from God, but also His great determination to provide for you the righteousness that you desperately need to stand before Him. May you be satisfied in knowing that though by nature you are a wretched sinner, God didn't leave you there. May you be satisfied with the knowledge that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. May you delight in this peace that you now have with God. In this reconciliation that's been wrought by the Lord Jesus Christ and His body on the tree. And the way in which He has died to bring you to God. May you be satisfied in that peace. May you enjoy it. May you delight in it, right? May you, may you delight in your union with Christ. Delight in this mystical way that you have been joined together with Christ in His death and His burial and His resurrection. May you rejoice in the truth that the power, uh, that, 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 that by the power of God you are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. May you rejoice and celebrate that you are now set free to be the slave of righteousness. May you be satisfied to know the power and the communion of the Holy Spirit. The way that He helps you in prayer. The way that He intercedes for you when you don't know what to pray. The way that He holds you fast for the future glory that awaits you. May you be satisfied knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. May you be satisfied in knowing that the promise of God's sovereign hand is over your life and He is working all things together for your good because you love Him. May you be satisfied in the knowledge that His sovereignty in your salvation, having chosen you and called you and justified you and sanctifying you now for the day of glorification that His sovereignty will not end. May you be satisfied in God's everlasting and conquering steadfast love through Christ Jesus our Lord. May you know the joy of being a living sacrifice. May you know the joy of living for something greater than yourself. May you know the joy of of being transformed and taking your place in the people of God and using your gifts and living your life to His glory. May you know the joy of obedience 
and fulfilling the, the law through love. May you live purposefully, adorning and proclaiming the gospel for the sake of lost souls. May you be satisfied in welcoming those whom Christ has welcomed. And may you with one voice together glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit who is God's good gift to you. May you be satisfied. May you be satisfied in Christ. That's what salvation is intended to produce. It's a prayer for a satisfied soul in the Lord Jesus Christ who is who is the very gospel of God. As we bring this teaching portion of this epistle to a close, I just want to offer these concluding thoughts. Five brief thoughts. And then a quote from J.C. Ryle. First one is this. I don't know about you, but as we have studied through Romans, the one thing that I... Not one thing. One of the several things that has been fortified in my heart is the truth that God is a God of unshakable truthfulness. Isn't He? He speaks of things as they are, not as we want them to be. He's a God who speaks truth. His Word is truth. He doesn't speak idle words. You know, there are some people that when you hear them talking, you know they're just talking to hear themselves, right? You, ever, you, you know what I'm talking about? And my dad would say that to me. When, like, when dad, my dad was giving me a command that I was not immediately responding to, he would say, hey boy, which is enough to make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, right? Hey boy, I'm not talking to hear myself talk. You knew exactly what that meant. And if you didn't, he'd remind you in about 30 seconds, right? Maybe less, depending how, how quickly he could dash from where he was to where you were, right? God doesn't speak idle words. He doesn't speak just to speak His words are powerful. His words have might like nothing else. Like when God speaks into the void, things are created. When God speaks, you listen. I listen. He doesn't speak idle words, but His truth defines reality. And you know what? Our response to His words define who we are. He's given us Christ as the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And that declaration is not going to change. Second, praise God that He is a God of unassailable faithfulness. Right? He always keeps His Word, doesn't He? God always keeps His Word. He really does save, and He will save all those whom He has promised to save in Christ. He will save us, and He will sanctify us, and He sustains us, and He strengthens us, and He preserves us. All who are His by the power of His Holy Spirit. Because God is faithful. He's, he's faithful. As, as, he, as Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is faithful. Number three, He's a God of unfathomable grace. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. When we got to the end of chapter 1, and then, the, then we got to like chapter 3 and verse you know, 10 through 18, we're reading like the, the, the description of mankind apart from God. Like, would any of us, could we, any of us really had held up a, a, a real objection if God had just said, you know what? These people are so corrupt. They are so, they are so wretched. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna destroy them all and start over again. Could any of us really have brought 
a charge against God for doing so? No. How remarkable then is it? How remarkable then is it that we who were so unworthy of any good thing from God at all, that He solemnly and sovereignly determined to lavish His grace on us for His glory and for our ultimate good. That the way that He would be determined to show His glory toward His church, toward His people, would not be by destroying us, but by loving us and crushing Christ on our behalf. That's grace unfathomable. His grace never fails. And so we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Number four, Paul writes this letter to let us know that in Christ alone is all our hope. In Christ alone is all our hope. Praise God we're no longer in Adam. Praise God we are no longer in Adam and under condemnation. We are in Christ. And, and His righteousness is ours. His, His death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. We are in Him. We are united to Him by faith. And so He must be the ground of all our hope. Amen? Listen, man. I, our, our hope is a living hope that rests on a living Christ with whom we are vitally and forever united and from whom nothing can separate us. Praise God. So put your hope, put your conscious hope unwaveringly in Him, not in yourself. Don't put your hope for a moment in yourself. You can't trust yourself. Don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope in your intelligence or your wisdom. Don't put your hope in your health. Don't put your hope in your money. Don't put your hope in your job. Don't put your hope in your good works. Don't put your hope in your reputation. Because you know what? Each one of those things can collapse in an instant. Right? Right? God means our hope to be firm and unshakable. And that hope is alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the hope of salvation. He's the hope of our children. He's the hope of our lives. He's the hope of our marriages. He's the hope of all ministry. He's the hope of our church. He is our hope in life and in death and in everything in between. So what we need to learn to say is this. Every single day and in all things, Lord Jesus, You alone are my hope and I have no need for any other. That's it. And last, when our hope is in Christ alone, God is most glorified. And you know why? Because the very reason for which Christ became a servant is comes to full realization when we bow our hearts to Him now. You remember this text. I read it a lot. Anybody want to guess where it's coming from? No? Starts with a fill. Ends with the ends. Has an ellipia in the middle. Philippians chapter 2. Christ emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in humble form, or human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death 
on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I want to close these words from our old friend, J.C. Ryle. Excellent, excellent words. Form a perfect summation to what we studied this morning. He says this. We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high of thoughts about Christ. We can never love Him too much. We can never trust Him too implicitly. We can never lay too much weight upon Him and speak too highly in His praise. He is worthy of all the honor we can give Him. He will be all in heaven. So let us see to it that He is all in our hearts on earth. He will be all in heaven. So let us see to it that He is all in our hearts on earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Your words are life. And we desperately need to hear them. And I'm grateful, Lord God, that You provided this wonderful epistle inspired by Your Holy Spirit and through the pen of Paul. I'm grateful, Father God, for the truth that it so powerfully conveys. And I pray that, Lord God, every one of us here who is in Christ, every one of us who is in Christ by faith and been welcomed by Christ into the family of God, that we would welcome one another and that we would do it to the praise of Your glory so that we together might be a people that would with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that in hearing these words, we would be emboldened and that we would be encouraged and that, Father God, we would have our hearts knit even more closely to You and to one another in Christ and this church. And that, Father God, we would recognize that we really do not live for the praise of our own glory despite what the world tries to tell us, despite the numerous influencers on Instagram or anywhere else, despite the great pride and arrogance that we see everywhere in our world. It's not about us. It is about Your glory. You are supreme. You. You are supreme over all. To You belongs all glory and all majesty and all praise. So I pray, Lord God, You would turn our hearts to recognize that and that we would respond in the way that we need to to what we've heard this morning. Father, I pray for those that are here today that are not in Christ. They've never come to a place in which they've called out to Christ in desperation to save them. They've never come to a place where they've believed in what Christ has done in His perfect life and in His death upon the cross in order to provide for them you know, the, the, the opportunity to repent and believe and be saved. God, I pray that You would move in the hearts of those that are here this morning in that condition and that You might move them to faith in Christ. I pray You move in power. I pray You move, Father God, in, in faithfulness. And I pray that what You store in our hearts, we would not easily forget. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.